Our speaker today has been recognized as a faculty pioneer by Aspen Institute, the top strategy professor under 40 by Strategic Management Society, and one of the top 40 business professionals under 40 by Poets and Quants. Wow, how impressive. Michael Lennox is the Samuel Slover Professor of Business at the University of Virginia's Darn School, where he coordinates and teaches the core MBA strategy course. His primary expertise is in the domain of technology, strategy, and policy. He also serves as the Associate Dean and Academic Director for the Darden Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. I got to go back to school and learn how to figure out how to say all these words, but it looks pretty impressive. A recognized thought leader on the interface between business strategy and public policy as it relates to the natural environment, he is the founder and president for the Multi-University Alliance for Research on Corporate Sustainability. Prior to joining Darden in 2008, Mr. Lennox taught at Duke and NYU. He received his PhD from MIT and his undergraduate and master's degree from the University of Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Mike Lennox. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Well, well, good morning. You know, first quick story there. All those under 40 awards, unfortunately, were a few years ago. So I, 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 I'm a little older than that now. Um, first, let me just say thank you to Cindy and to Althea and to the Alumni Association Alumni Engagement for putting this event on and having me uh, here today. Uh, let me start with a question for you all. I just want to see a show of hands. How many of you have taken an online course, any type of online course? Excellent. How many of you have taken a MOOC, a massively open online course? A few of you there. How many of you have completed a massively? Oh, very good. Very, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little more about that. This is a topic for me that's very interesting for two reasons. Uh, first, uh, as a teacher, as a professor, and so the idea of engaging in an online environment, students from around the world, has been really interesting to me and something I've learned a lot about as a teacher. But second, and I'm going to talk quite a bit about this today, also as a researcher. So as Cindy said, my interest, I'm an economist, but I'm interested in issues around industry evolution, and in particular, disruptive technologies, disruptive innovation. And there's been quite a lot written and said recently about the disruptive potential of online education for universities. So to start off with, I'd like to just share with you some stories, uh, some stories you might be familiar with, some stories you might not be familiar with. So we have an old picture here. Uh, anyone want to guess who's in the car? Henry Ford, not quite. This is actually uh, Thomas Edison is on the left side there. It's actually one of the Studebaker brothers, one of the Studebaker brothers. So here they are driving a newfangled innovation at the time, a horseless carriage, better known as an automobile. Now probably many of you have heard of the Studebaker brothers, and in particular the Studebaker vehicle. And they had a successful entry into the automotive industry, but they never really gained a lot of traction. And after a few decades, they had uh, basically gone out of business and are now just kind of a footnote in history. What many of you probably don't know is that the Studebaker brothers were the most successful creators, builders of horse-drawn carriages. After the Civil War period in the United States, they emerged as the number one maker of uh, horse-drawn carriages. At one point in time, they had 60% market share in the world for horse-drawn carriages. If we were going to go and look at you know, some of the top entrepreneurs or business people of that period, the Studebaker brothers would be on that list. 
along comes this innovation, the horseless carriage, the automobile, and suddenly they make a transition, but they're never nearly as successful as they were in the old business that they were in. Here we have a Remington typewriter. Right? Remington typewriter in 1910 had 80% market share in the New York City market. Overall, they had a 60% market share in the US market. Again, one of the iconic companies of the la beginning of the last century. What happens? Well, we all know what happens. We first had the IBM uh, um, electronic typewriter, and then eventually the personal computer and word processing come around. And now Remington is just an artifact of history here. Sears. Now, here's a company that's still around. But as many of you are probably aware, Sears was the leading retailer in the United States really up until the early 1980s. Their consumer guide was called the Bible of retailing. If we were going to look back in the 70s, and in fact there are many publications that did, and cite like the top 10 US businesses, Sears would be on that list. Now what's interesting about Sears is that Sears didn't have a technology disruption per se. They had a business model disruption. Walmart. Target, slightly different way of organizing the supply chain, slightly different way of getting into the market. So Sears still is with us, but it is a shell of its former self, not nearly the iconic firm that we once saw. One of my favorite examples. People remember this? This is the Pets.com sock puppet. So during the dot-com boom, Pets.com was an early entrant into the pet retail supply stores being uh, sold online. The sock puppet was an iconic kind of figure. They actually had a sock puppet balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Super Bowl commercials. And for a while, they did really, really well. In fact, their stock was you know, one of those high flyers during the, uh, the dot-com era. As one could imagine, the dot-com crash, socks, uh, excuse me, uh, pets.com, the sock puppet, out of business. What I think is interesting about them is, one, they were a new entrant. They were the potential disruptor. Yet, when faced with the increase in competition that we saw caused by online, they struggled, as does many. And that's something to think about when we think about online education and what the competitive environment in online education is likely to be like. Some more recent examples, Blockbuster Video, we probably all know them, leading company here in the retail sales of, uh, of DVDs and before that uh, VHS tapes, gone. If you weren't aware, there are no more blockbusters. There might be a few stores that are going to be closed still, but they are basically out of business. Kodak, right? Kodak is uh, bankrupt. They're just emerging from bankruptcy. Again, a shell of their former self. Now, we all know what happened to Kodak. Kodak, again, one of these iconic companies of the 20th century, uh, leader in film-based photography, uh, and along comes digital cameras. What's interesting is Kodak knew this. Kodak was not naive. In fact, as early as the beginning of the 1980s, they were investing in digital technology. They have some of the first patents on digital cameras and digital technology. And as late as 2005, they actually were the number one sellers of single-shot, simple cameras. But then along came the iPhone. No one buys those cameras anymore. There's still some of the high-end digital cameras, but the low-ends are gone. It's all basically your personal digital assistant or, or, or phone. And so Kodak, again, one of these iconic companies, is now, uh, again, basically gone. All right. So that brings us to our beloved university. Go who's, exactly. What does this rise in online education mean for us? There are clearly those 
who believe it's the end. Now, Sebastian Thrun is not one not known for hyperbole here. Stanford professor, founder of Udacity. In 50 years, there will only be 10, 10 institutions in the world delivering higher education, and Udacity has a shot at being one of them. We have a whole bunch of entry into this online education market. That's Udacity symbol. That's one called Udemy, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Coursera, which many of you probably have heard of, the Khan Academy. In fact, there are hundreds of new entrants into the online education space here. Uh, in terms of uh, venture capital investment, kind of excitement in Silicon Valley, this is kind of the new hot area, is the ed tech space here. But it's not limited just to these startups. We see some of this rhetoric amongst colleges and universities and professors. So here's Clay Christensen, who is the one who kind of coined and popularized the term disruptive innovation. He says half of US institutions will be bankrupt in 15 years because of the impact of online business models. The professor, excuse me, dean at the Berkeley School of Business says 50% of business schools will be out of business within five and 10 years because of online. And we're seeing a reaction, as one might imagine, from universities, established universities, into this space. edX is an initiative between Harvard and MIT, where they're offering online education. They brought in a lot of other partners. Uh, UNC, our friends here today for the football game, they have a purely online MBA here that they created in concert with a company, a startup out of New York called 2U who's worked with a number of different universities, including Georgetown and USC, to set up online graduate degree programs. Harvard Business School has a new initiative called HBX, in which they are offering online business education to those who do not have any business training. You know, many of you might be familiar with the McIntyre School has a program that's a residential program in that market. Here comes Harvard with an online entry. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So what does this all mean? Is the university about to be disrupted? So let me take a step back now and talk a little bit about my experience as an online teacher and tell you again you know, my story and my journey of how I came into this. And, and then we'll end with kind of some thoughts I have of what the disruption may or may not be. All right, so here I am. Here I am doing you know, maybe something similar to here, standing in front of classroom. This is what I typically do as a professor. Uh, at the Darden School, if you're not aware, we're one of the few schools that is a pure case-based school. We, in fact, don't lecture. What I'm doing right now is something actually we never do in the Darden classroom. Instead, we have a Socratic exchange where we have students participate and ask questions, and we ask questions of them and exchange. Um, in many ways, people talk about flipping the classroom, the idea of getting lectures out and putting in discussion. We've been flipping the classroom at Darden for 50-plus years. Here's what my online offering looks like. Now granted, my online offering is about two years old. Production values have gotten a lot better since then. But they all have more or less the kind of the same idea. You, you have some visual aid, maybe a PowerPoint, maybe a uh, animation. You maybe see the professor every once in a while talking. And it kind of moves back and forth. Uh, we typically do something called chunking the video, which simply means short, easily consumable units. Five to 10 minutes is kind of the going norm in the industry right now. And then you might have a whole series of these that build up to a fuller lecture uh, in, a, in a course. What's interesting about my story is I created these videos in the spring of 2012 before really any of these MOOCs had taken off. 
And the reason I had created it wasn't for online education in the massively consumed way, but was actually as a complement to what I do in the Darden classroom. And if there was a substitution, what I was substituting for were written technical notes or textbooks. I thought this might be a more effective delivery method than just giving uh, a written technical note. As I joke with my students, instead of a dry technical note, now you get to watch a dry video of me instead. So it's interesting to note that this wasn't trying to substitute what I do in the classroom. This is a complement. And in fact, for the last three years, first-year Darden MBAs who take my strategy course or any of the strategy courses get access to these videos as part of their preparation for coming in to the classroom. So this is the spring of 2012, and as I was creating these videos, I was contacted by a company called Udemy. And Udemy had something called the Faculty Project, where they had contacted a number of leading faculty to help create materials to put on their platform. Well, this was kind of a no-brainer, because we were already creating the videos. It was very easy now to port it over to their platform. Their platform is what I'd like to call an asynchronous, asynchronous platform. Asynchronous in the sense that you could consume the materials whenever you wanted, and asynchronous in the sense that there was no beginning and end to the course. So you can go on right now, log in, and get full access to all the materials and watch it at whatever pace that you would like. Their business model, if you're curious, is they have lots of materials that are free, including my course. It's a free course. However, they do have other courses that you pay for. And the rates are usually $50 to about $200 that you would pay to get access to these videos and the like. In April of that same spring, 2012, Coursera was created. And by June, there was a team of us who were actually at Coursera's headquarters discussing their new platform. It was interesting, very much Silicon Valley startup. They were about a mile away from Stanford's campus in Palo Alto. They had a, uh, just basically a shell of a company. You go in there, they had no furniture. They had about five employees. But they had you know, big rhetoric, big visions here uh, as they started off. By July, we had an agreement with the university, and we began to have faculty uh, plan to offer courses through the Coursera platform. And I was one of the faculty who was one of the first to offer on the Coursera platform. Coursera is what I'd like to call a synchronous, asynchronous model. So you can still consume the material at your leisure, but there actually is a beginning and an end to the course, and we roll out the information on a week-to-week -week basis. Now, that allows us to do some interesting things that we couldn't do in the Udemy course. So for one, there's a weekly exam. In my case, it's a multiple-choice exam graded online, and you can do the material as you move through, progress through the course. The second thing is you now have a cohort of students taking that course. And so we would do a case discussion, like, but not quite like, what we would do in the Darden classroom. Like the Darden classroom in that there would be a written case that they would read in preparation, but then they would use the online discussion forums to have a conversation about that case. And because it was asynchronous, it wasn't happening in real time. It was somebody would post something, and then a few hours later, somebody might post a response. And that would continue uh, for days or even weeks on these discussions about the cases. The final piece that was unique was we created a final project. So we have an actual written analysis they have to do of a company of their choosing, a strategic analysis given my course. And they submit this at the end of the term, at the end of the course, and then it's peer evaluated. So they actually grade each other's, which is really the only way to do it because between you and me, I am not grading thousands of these, uh, these final projects here. So this starts to feel at least a little more like a course that we might offer 
at the university, but still has some very, very important differences. So let's, let's talk about who signed up for this. So first off, uh, I've actually offered the course now five times. We're right in the middle of it right now. If you're interested, you can, you know, today start taking the course. There's a couple weeks left in it. I've had 350,000 students enroll. 350,000 students enroll. Anybody know how many active uh, alumni or alumni that we have that are, are, are living right now at the University of Virginia? It's about 200,000. That's over, you know, 60, 70 years. I've had over 20,000 complete the course. Now, a lot of people bring their hands saying, wow, you know, it's a small number versus the 350. 20,000 is 5,000 more than the entire graduates of Darden through its history. It's about 15,000 alumni at Darden through its entire history. 200 countries represented. Anybody know how many countries there are in the world? There's a little more than 200, but not many, right? So virtually every country in the world represented. Again, small percentage that complete it, but 168 countries represented amongst those who completed the course. Again, the scale is absolutely amazing. Now, who are these students? What do they look like? Well, this might be surprising. Um, people think of an 18-year-old when they think of a college student. Our average age, 35. 80% have a university degree. A large percentage of them have advanced studies, either a master's degree or more. If I was going to characterize the typical student, it is a mid-career business professional who's looking to improve their skill set and apply it in the job that they're working for or perhaps a new position that they're looking to have. Now, of course, that's somewhat unique to my course because it is a business course. But the need use here is very interesting. So we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of um, small business owners. We had a lot of entrepreneurs taking my course, again, who were trying to improve their work environment, trying to improve their competitive situation. You can see, again, the geographic spread here, not surprisingly, a lot in Europe, a lot in the US. My course was translated into Portuguese. And so what you see down here, Sao Paulo, was actually the single largest city in terms of number of students, over 6,000. Over 6,000 students from Sao Paulo, Brazil, alone who are taking my course. Similar numbers throughout India there is another area where there was large numbers. Uh, I, uh, not to brag, but I've been named on the top 10 list for Brazilian MOOCs. I was named recently on the top 10 list for Russian MOOCs. You know, <laughs> it's fascinating. And, and, and so uh, uh, the, the breadth and spread of these is amazing. But probably even more heartening as, a, as, a, as an educator are some of the use cases. So this is a program, the Yala Leaders, which is bringing together Palestinians and Israelis and Arabs in general with Jewish students to try to build connections and try to build, in essence, peace between these people by bringing them together in educational settings. They took my course. So they contacted me that they were going to all come through and take, take my course. Uh, I had a student group in Argentina, similarly, who got together. And I actually did a little web uh, chat with them about my course. They had about 30 or 40 students taking it. I had a Peace Corps volunteer in Mongolia who got 30 students together there to go through my course as a cohort, and they met every week and discussed the course and discussed the cases you know, residentially um, as they were taking my online course. Uh, I had faculty at other universities contact me that they were using my course as the basis for their course, which I have to say is a little bit disturbing, and we can talk more about whether that's fair use of, this, uh, of, these, of these offering technologies. I had a homeless woman 
reach out to me and apologize because she had been unable to watch the videos for two weeks because of her temporary housing situation. There was a group of women who were uh, um, survivors of domestic abuse in Ohio who had a program where they got together. They were taking my course as a way to help them be successful small business people to get on, uh, get on their feet. I had a 12-year-old reach out to me who was taking my course, who was an entrepreneur. He was already on his third business and, in fact, had been highlighted in the national media for his uh, success as a 12-year-old uh, entrepreneur. One of the uh, uh, interesting collaborations that I did from day one was with a company called Corsov, who had reached out to me. Uh, just an amazing group. Uh, the leader is a, um, a Rhodes Scholar, uh, really smart guy. And he had this interesting idea that if you have all these students doing a project, why not have them meet up with organizations that are looking for projects to be done for them? So this platform allows students and organizations to find matches. And we've had a lot of interesting, successful examples where our students are doing real-world projects for companies and organizations through the CoreSolve platform. Just to share a couple of them, we had a number of nonprofits. So this is, uh, once again, uh, how to do a strategic analysis. So do a strategic analysis for the Alliance for Refugee Youth Support and Education. And here's another nonprofit called the Food Recovery Network, again, where we had teams of students going through my course doing a project for this organization. What you learn is there's just an incredible amount of talent out in the world. Students from all over who don't have access to the higher education that we take for granted sometimes here in the United States. And so they're desperate to prove themselves. They're desperate to have those opportunities. And they love being able to reach out and work with groups like this to show that they can do this level of work. All right. So what does this all mean? What does this all mean for the university? So some observations. First off, I would argue that online education is still emerging. Now, what's interesting is online education has actually been around for a long time. If we think about correspondence courses, they go back like 100 years. People remember the video courses from like the 70s and 80s. They're still around, the great courses where you get the DVD. So they're still around. Online, again, goes back at least to the rise of the Internet, if not even before. So we're talking the mid-1990s, maybe early 1990s. However, I feel like we're at an inflection point. So one of the common observations we see in technology after technology is what we call the S-curve. Early on in the history of a technology, there is often a period of low adoption and a lot of experimentation. The automobile, decades before it really took off. Uh, a lot of even like consumer electronics have this path where they'll be around for a while and then they'll take off. You know, if you remember the old personal digital assistants, even from Apple, uh, what was it called, the Newton back in the mid-90s here? It took Apple like 20 years to figure things out uh, with the iPhone and, and the iPad and the like. So I think we we're, we're really seem to be at that inflection point where we're really seeing a takeoff in our learning and understanding of how to do online education. We're seeing massive entry into the space once again. One of the areas I do research on is the, what is a common phenomenon of a shakeout within an industry. And what you typically see is at the early stage of an industry, you get massive entry, and then competition ensues, and there's a shakeout where you see a lot of firms either exiting or merging and being acquired together. We're still at that growth phase right now with lots of different entrants in there. Don't be surprised. A lot of the big players uh, that we see entering in, the new startups, they're going to go out of business. That's just the nature of the beast, and that's going to continue over the next five, ten years, probably play itself, play itself out. MOOCs in particular... I think are very interesting, as we've talked about here. 
I think they may be, at the end of the day, somewhat of a red herring in this debate. It's not about MOOCs. It's really about online education. MOOCs are a very particular beast here where they're very, as the name suggests, open and distributed. What we do see is there are smaller versions that are offered, maybe more selective versions of online programs, and that might be the future in a lot of these different areas. So really, let's think online versus more residential is the, the end debate here. One of the interesting things about online is it's likely to be a highly concentrated industry. So if we look at higher ed in its current form right now, it is one of the most least concentrated industries that I can think of. Harvard, let's argue, you know, UVA, number one public, but Harvard, very successful university, has what percentage of the market? It, you know, less than you know, 1% of 1% maybe, a very slim part of the market here. We have over 4,000 universities, or excuse me, four-year universities and colleges in the United States, 4,000. This is a very, very unconcentrated market. What do we know about online? Well, high fixed costs to develop the types of materials we place online, and fairly low variable costs, if no variable costs to those once they are put up there. In many ways, that's what I've capitalized on. I put a lot of effort to create my course, but now it's very easy for me to offer it over and over again. Those types of markets tend towards a winner-take-all structure. So think about Microsoft with the Microsoft operating system, the 98% market share. My bet is that we're not going to have hundreds of online providers. We're going to have a handful of a few very, very large online providers in the market. People have joked about, maybe not joked, talked about like, you know, what if Starbucks decided to move into this space? Somehow use their physical space in the online to offer kind of Starbucks U, right? People talk about Google U and the like. So those, those ideas are out there, and, and my bet would be someone's going to emerge and kind of figure this out and do it at really big scale. What does that mean for residential? You hear a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of people saying, well, wait a minute, there's no way this online environment is as good as a residential-based education. I'm here to tell you that's exactly right. Absolutely. Let's not fool ourselves for a second. An online education is inferior to a good residential-based education, and I don't see it ever being better. There's some interesting advantages online has, but it is always going to be inferior. It's not going to matter at the end of the day. So some things on the residential side. First of all, uh, you know, maybe being a little too dramatic, lecturing is dead, okay? Lecturing in its traditional form of standing in front of a room with 100 students is dead. It's way too easy to put a camera on someone, create that material, and just have it consumed when needed. So one-way dissemination of knowledge is going to go away. Um, I think it will take a long time. I think there will be a lot of resistance. It's scary for faculty because we don't need 100 faculty doing lectures on strategy. We might need two or three at the end of the day, which is going to completely change some of the incentives for faculty in terms of being kind of superstar faculty. I think we'll see more and more. Um, so it's going to be a changing environment there. High engagement learning is the future. Now, again, I, I feel bullish about the Darden School. We've been flipping the classroom for 50 years. That's where the market's going to need to go for residential-based education. You have to be more value-added than just a traditional lecture. And I think we've known that for a long time. And we know there's so much we can add in a residential setting, again, that you can't do in an online environment. Why that's important is because those superior models of engagement don't scale. What I do in the Darden classroom, it is very hard to do with more than 60, 65 students. If you have 1,000 students, too many of them are passive consumers of what we're doing in the classroom. They're not active participants. So residential has an advantage and cannot be replaced by online because what we do so well doesn't scale. 
very well. All right. Despite this, the disruption is coming. Why do I believe that? Very simply, a Porsche is better than a Kia. Sorry to any Kia owners out there. I think we can agree with that. There are far more Kias sold than Porsches. Why? Because they're cheaper, right? It's hard for us to get our hands around that. We don't want to you know, admit that to ourselves, but you know, I'm sure there's many of you who are parents out there who paid for education. At some gap, there will be a switch. At some gap between what a residential-based education costs and an online education, and if the quality is at least narrowed, you will make that switch. Now, I don't believe any of the rhetoric that says the universities are dead. Far from it. But what I do think is there's going to be a bifurcation in the market. I think we're going to see actually the elite residential universities being even more sought after and maybe even see the premiums that people pay actually go up. And I think the lower tier parts of the college education market are in real trouble. If the University of Texas, who's talked about a $10,000 online degree, is successful in that, and it becomes a credible degree, would you rather get the University of Texas degree or kind of a third tier or fourth tier university degree and pay you know, $40,000, $50,000 a year for that degree? That's where the disruption is going to occur. What scares me, what scares me for a UVA is what's the competitive response if you're one of these you know, third tier universities? It's to move up. You've got to avoid this. You do not want to be kind of stuck in the middle at this point. And so what they're all going to do is they're going to try to raise more money. They're going to be doing big alumni campaigns. They're going to try desperately to move out of this brutally competitive market that they're likely to find themselves in. And we're already starting to see. Uh, people know Thunderbird University. If they've ever heard of that. It's a business school, position themselves in international business. They're bankrupt. We're going to see this happen. There are schools, UVA is in a, a very uh, unique position, not a unique position, but elite position in that we are a selective university. The vast majority of universities don't have admissions, they have enrollment management. They're trying to get students to come in, and there are schools now that are finding their enrollments are going down. They can't find enough students to fill the classroom. Challenge is, there's not an active exit market for universities. If I'm right about the future, consolidation doesn't matter. You take two residential universities and combine them, then you just you know, multiply the problem. You haven't solved anything there. You have endowments, you have alumni. How does an existing university go out of business? It happens, by the way, and I think it will increasingly happen, but it will take a long time. So I think what's going to happen in the short run, again, is this race to the top. Everyone's going to try more and more to be amongst that elite set of schools to avoid this mass competitive market that I think is going to emerge. Now, the big question is, where's the, where's the Mendoza line? You know, where do you need to be? And there, I don't have a good answer. Is it 200 residential-based universities? Some say it's going to be 20 residential-based universities. And again, I don't have a crystal ball to know that. But I do feel like out of the 4,000 universities we see, there's going, to be, uh, there's going to be some disruption taking place here. So let me end with one last slide, and then I do want to open this up to questions. Lest we lose uh, faith here, the good news is universities are enduring institutions. In fact, I would argue next to the church or next to religion, universities are the most enduring creations of humankind. So here you see the founding dates of some of our universities, some of our churches, and then you add in things like governments. There's some arguments about this, but arguably the USA is actually the longest standing government in the world right now. Single government uh, move forward. Switzerland, 1815, probably is the next one on the list. Uh, you look at companies, 
some of our longest standing venerable companies, ExxonMobil, it started at Standard Oil, General Electric, IBM, 100, 150 years old. So universities, you know, we go back to 1088 here, the University of Bologna, you have the University of Oxford. So there's something about at least some of the uh, established universities that uh, they're not ephemeral. They, they've been here a long time. So I, I take this as kind of hopeful, you know, looking forward that the university as we know it will continue to persist. It will continue to be successful. But there is a disruption coming, I believe. So let me end there and open it up to, uh, to questions. Where does the honor system fit, fit into this? Oh, that's a great, great question. I, you know, it's interesting. The MOOCs themselves do not, I, I would not classify them as university students in the same way. They're, they're lifelong learners who are consuming at their own rate. And it's a great question of how we think about them in terms of our other norms, but I think now we don't, we don't view them as students in the way we do others. So they, they, they aren't falling under the same set of norms and traditions that we have. Technology is trying to solve some of the uh, cheating issues. Um, that's something I think Coursera and others are really pushing hard, is the ability to actually verify that people are doing the work that they say. But that has a long way to go before they can be confident in that. I think for UVA, the honor system as it always has been is an incredible part of our value proposition. And it, it highlights, again, you know, that can't be replaced by online education. So again, that's what I think the elite schools, those are the types of factors that allow us to be differentiated players in the market. Got one back here. Yeah. Yes, a very interesting uh, observation of the evolution of uh, the business world, manufacturing, part of it, and the consumer aspect. I was wondering, in your research and looking at the future, uh, have you were familiar with the Collapse of Complex Societies by Joseph Tainter? Uh, I, I'm not familiar with his, but I know of, of course, like the work by uh, Jared Diamond and others on... Uh, yes, yes, yeah. and Herman Daly? Yeah, yep. Oh, good, good, good. Well, now, it looks to us that uh, the resources of Mother Earth are limited, and we're using at such a rate in trying to produce gadgets and stuff, uh, the population of the Earth goes up 9,000 every 60 minutes. That's four times Char Charlottesville every 24 hours. 7.5 billion people, how can we keep this up without recognizing the second law of thermodynamics, entropy? All right, so this is uh, a different topic. <laughs> One that I'm actually very, very interested in though. Uh, um, so I do a lot of work in the area of sustainability and especially as it relates to, to business. So that, that would be a longer conversation uh, I share many of your same worries, uh, and I, you know, as a former engineer, want to try to devise solutions to them. Uh, so to bring it back to the topic, you know, education as the key to advancing our, our ability to address those questions. I have uh, two questions and an observation. The first is a facetious question. What happens to our uh, Section 529 plans? <laughs> what are we going to do with all that money? Yeah. The second question, which is more serious, is how in this structure does the uh, intellectual uh, research and scholarship aspects of university faculties persist in a world in which uh, this concentration occurs? And the third is an observation that what you're describing in education looks to me like a direct parallel to what's happened in the medical profession. Yep. Uh, the medical profession has gone from physicians first to 
businessmen first. And this looks like it's going to do the same thing to the faculty. So again, I would argue that we're looking at a, uh, a bifurcation. So I think, again, for the elite residential universities, the value of research gets even uh, more valued moving forward. Uh, will we have the number of researchers out there that we've had in the last decade or so? Probably not, as we see some of these other universities maybe fall by the wayside. But I, no, I, I think the research mission of um, the, the top part of the university scale will continue to find that being a valuable piece here. There'll be a shrinkage in the overall market. Let's, let's be clear, too. Out of uh, the 4,000 universities I mentioned, 4,000 colleges, most of them are not research-oriented universities, right? So there's a very small number, typically at the top end of the scale, who are really research-focused universities to begin with. Uh, and again, I'm arguing that's actually probably the safest part of, of the marketplace here. So I would, um, you, you mentioned the elite, but I would, my comment has always been that, I, that online education will have arrived when you're willing to have your surgery done by someone who got their surgical degree uh, in an online course. And so, so um, as you mentioned, there are like 4,000 universities. Quite frankly, probably half of them would be, should be shut down and the students allowed to go to a place where they might actually learn more than they're and they're currently spending at the place they're at. Some of these will be obviously insulated because they're government yeah. supported, so they're gonna take a long, long time for them to go out of business. But in, in addition to elite, I was thinking the medical schools, some of them are not at the most elite universities in the country. And so how does that kind of education play into this in the sense of it's a skill set that cannot be easily, I guess you could argue at some point we'll get to the point where we'll have a way in which people can do surgery, uh, you know, in some kind of, a, some kind of an online preparation, but that's, that's a long way away. Uh, so some of those schools will survive simply because they have something that is unique and not easily taught through online education, isn't that correct? So I think, it's interesting, I hadn't thought about the medical school example. I, I do see people talking about dis, uh, or let's say pulling apart some things that are currently embodied in what we would call a university. So let's think about what we do. There's instruction, there's um, experiential learning, and then there's also certification. And that's one of the things that's kind of interesting to see if those things start to pull apart. So it's an interesting uh, company out there, or I guess college out there, they might be a nonprofit, uh, Minerva University, I don't know if people have heard of them, where they're doing completely online, yet they're having people residentially based together, and they're emphasizing the experiential piece. So one could imagine you do all your coursework online, and then you do your residency you know, in, in a hospital to get your uh, practical training. The last piece is the certification piece, which is fascinating to me is that there's some players in the ed tech space who are trying to provide certifications, and typically at this point, it's above and beyond your degree. So think about JDs, or law degrees, and how you have to pass the bar. Now there are those saying, wow, you know, just having a college degree isn't sufficient. You have to prove your ability to do certain jobs, and we're gonna provide testing on top of that. 
One could imagine a world in which, if that's the world we're going into, why does universities do any type of certification at all? This actually goes back to kind of the Jeffersonian ideal that you come and you come here to learn. You stay as long as you want, you stay here as long as you need, and then you go, right? The idea of degrees is, is, was not Jefferson's initial intent for the university. I, I don't think we'll go there anytime soon, but it is interesting to think about that model where we're, you know, we're just educators and others are doing the certification uh, piece. Thank you for the wonderful presentation. I'm surprised you didn't mention in it um, the career services at universities. You know, Darden yep. has a very strong one. I'm from engineering school. We have all these career fairs around the year. McIntyre School of Commerce, for example. And people who take courses in line obviously don't have advantages of those uh, connections with the industry and employers come into grounds. So do you think that's a good protection layer for us and other schools? So that's one where there's a lot of interesting work happening on Actually, online. I'm sorry, I had yeah. a second one really quickly. And oh, sure. And you've already speaking to some of those. Do you think the, there's going to be some fragmentation um, in terms of what kind of departments are going to be falling out first? Uh, for example, you know, in engineering, yeah. we have our 3D printing lab at mechanical aerospace. And those are hundreds of thousands of dollars equipment, and students need to do their work on it. They, they can't do it online. So those are going to be preserved a little longer. What do you think about that? So, so your first question about career services, there is a lot of interesting things happening online. So Udacity is one. You know, a lot of these companies, because these are companies, are looking for uh, their business model. And so Udacity has been trying to operate under the assumption that they could be a uh, labor sourcing for large corporations. So they partnered, for example, with AT&T on a project. Um, there is a lot, as, we, as I talked about, of talent out there in the world that doesn't have access to you know, career services like the UVA provides. Online is allowing people now to get credentials to prove themselves and then use that perhaps as a way to get access to, uh, to jobs. So again, it's not necessarily superior to what we do, but it is interesting to see that the market's trying to solve that problem for people. CoreSolve that I mentioned uh, sees that as one of their large uh, value adds is that students who go through and do a project for a company now have someone naturally able to do a recommendation for them. And they link in with LinkedIn. So when you have your LinkedIn profile, now you can have these recommendations saying, you know, student X did a project for me. I was very impressed. They did X, Y, Z. And so there's an ability for them to get those types of endorsements and the like that they wouldn't, they wouldn't get, you know, historically if they weren't part of a, of a school. I think the other question about the, uh, you know, things like the, the uh, 3D printing and the like, you know, clearly, again, there are certain parts of the experiential learning that we provide that is, is not replicable online. Yeah. Could you talk about the elephant sitting in the corner of the room, the unpleasantness of a few years ago? Ah. Do I have to? <laughs> um, all, all I'll say is we were at Coursera three weeks before all that hit. We, were, we signed a contract, you know, a few weeks after that. There was a lot going on at the university about online education. I, I think the second thing, and I think this, this is important, um, is that, and I worry about this, and I'm not, again, this is, this is a broader statement. You see the Sebastian Thrones of the world out there. He's out there saying, don't go to college. College is going to be gone. And this rhetoric is, is you know, obviously just being picked up by the popular media. The idea that the University of Virginia, given our elite status, is going to disappear in the near future because online education is going to replace us is foolish. That is not going to happen. Similarly, the idea that the University of Virginia should become an online provider, 
from my strategy side says, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, that doesn't mean we don't play online. It doesn't mean that there's ways in which we have to leverage what's going on to enhance our own current offerings and play somewhat in that. But the idea that, uh, let me put it this way. Um, what we've seen historically in other industries that are disrupted is that the incumbent players are rarely the ones who survive the disruption or, or, the, disruption, or the disruptors themselves. It's usually the new entrants who are coming in with new ideas who have the freedom to pursue it that really become the providers there. Will we see an established university become my kind of big online provider? Maybe. My bet would be it's, on a, it's going to be on a new entrant. It's going to be someone coming in without the burdens of the existing university who devise a new way of dividing, uh, giving online education. So again, we should be concerned. We need to pay attention to this. But the kind of broader rhetoric that this is the end of the university seems very, very misplaced to me. Uh, this is a curiosity question, yeah. but you spoke about these thousands of students in 200 different countries and, and peer review. How does that work? So it, it works um, okay. How's that for a, a diplomatic <laughs> response? The way, if you look at Coursera, Coursera will talk about peer review, and if you look, it's very correlated with faculty review. And I actually believe those results. The problem is the variance is much, much higher. So for an individual student, you could get the bad luck of the draw and get five terrible reviewers and get a terrible grade. So again, on average, yeah, it actually works pretty well. But that doesn't matter to the individual student who gets the bad luck of the draw. So the, the problem, of course, is I'm not sure what the other solution is in these massively open online courses for peer evaluation. Again, I am not going to grade 20,000 uh, final projects. Um, so we're, you know, I think that's an area that there still needs to be a lot of improvements on the online environment side. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing as a result is where there's been the most progress are those types of courses and coursework that lend themselves to very objective grading. So if you can do a multiple choice exam, if you can do a problem set where there's a right or wrong answer, they're doing well. So computer science is doing very, very well, some of the engineering disciplines. Uh, it's probably going to be a long time until we see like an online English degree that is really, really robust and scalable. Because of either content or technology, what do you expect to be the life expectancy of your class? That's a great question. So the, you know, the one interesting thing is I said, we did this two years ago, right? Two and a half years ago, I created the, the content. Within six months, I felt like it looked dated. Like there was a number of choices we made that I regret. Uh, if you remember, they had me against a black background. Terrible idea. We should have done like a green screen because then they could have placed me in different, different ways. Uh, you see animation, a lot of like... You know, you ever see, like, remember the UPS commercials where the guy would do the whiteboard drawing? You see a lot of that now starting to appear. So the production values are going up and up and up. That also means the cost is going up and up and up. Uh, so mine is, you know, really dated in terms of just the delivery. The materials I'd like to think are, um, uh, uh, have more of a lifetime to them. I, you know, the, the fields that we teach hopefully don't change that quickly. What does change is some of the references we make. So uh, I made a reference uh, in one of the tapes to Apple being the highest capitalized firm in the world. Well, you know, a few months later, their stock price went down and they no longer were, right? Uh, so, you know, some of your examples get dated uh, pretty quickly, especially in a business, uh, a business environment. But um, one hopes that it has some, some length. So I don't know. How's that for an answer here? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to milk it as long as I can. And, and <laughs> 
No, but I am planning to do another course. That's my thinking right now. So I, I, as you know, I, I do work in technology, strategy, and innovation, so kind of a follow-up course that's um, more specific to those topics is my, my next offering. Okay. I'm asking a question from the viewpoint of a student. Yes. And if the student takes an online course at Darden yeah. and also residential courses at Darden, uh, how are those grades going to be compatible and how does Darden uh, view the overall the uh, online as well as the residential in grade points? So this is, this is where, again, online has a lot of development to go. So to be clear, my course online on Coursera, my students aren't taking it. The videos I give to them as they take my regular residential-based course, but they're not taking the Coursera course. Coursera, technically, is the one who gives the certificate, not the University of Virginia. And it's a certificate. You guys can help me understand what a certificate is, because right now it is, it's, not, it's not credit, and it's not clear what a certificate is. I'm very clear, and I've been clear since day one, that my course is not equivalent to what I do in the Darden classroom. I would not give the same credit for my online course to what I do in the Darden classroom. Again, I see a lot of hand-wringing about this and people upset. I saw a lot of my colleagues in the College of Arts and Sciences when they were doing their online courses, they, they really wanted to make it equivalent. My, my response is, why, right? This is lifelong learning, more or less. This is for people to improve their skill set. Uh, whether it meets our you know, 1.5 or 3 credit course is somewhat irrelevant. Now, that's for us doing the MOOCs. There are others, like I mentioned, UNC has an online MBA. They need to figure that out. They need to feel comfortable that that material you're going through is sufficient for them to stamp the UNC MBA degree. Um, the way they're addressing it, just if you're curious now, is they're limiting the number of people who can go take the online MBA. And in fact, their advertisements are, this is the online degree you can't get into. It's an interesting kind of selling point. But, you know, uh, I've, I've talked to some of UNC grads. I mean, there is worry about, you know, dilution of their MBA for those who went through the residential piece when you've got this online degree out there. But the way they're handling it is they're still being selective. Uh, and Two questions. Okay. Uh, as a quick follow-up, how many, if any, of the 350,000 ever wind up on the grounds? So I don't know the answer to that, and I really want to. Uh, Darden this year had more Brazilian students uh, uh, enroll and apply and enroll than we've ever had before. I, I can't say the causation is me, and I don't think it is, because we've also been spending more time going there in general. Um, uh, but that's a great question, and we really need to verify, like, have we had students? I know we've had students take the course who've then enrolled, but I don't know if the causation is there. I haven't had anyone say to me, yes, I came to Darden because of your course yet. I'm still waiting for that. For that. Got one last question. One last question. Hi. Uh, this is coming from the heart of a baby boomer and, and concern for our younger generation. Uh, one of the things in any business, education is obviously a huge business. Um, and one of the things you look at is the return on investment yeah. from the customer's perspective. And one of the, the concerns I have is, and I'm sure a lot of other people have, is when you look at the, the shrinking job availability to people and uh, through outsourcing, through automation, it's just like they were saying recently on the news, uh, even McDonald's, they're going to replace the employees. If the minimum wage is increased, they'll replace them with automation. 
robots will do it because you don't have to pay you don't have to pay benefits. Uh, half of the cost of an employee is benefit package. So if you can replace it with a machine that's more efficient and effective and you don't have benefits, business people are going to do that. So we have an environment where we have a shrinking availability of jobs and it's become uh, very evident. A lot of uh, like 50% of uh, college grads were having difficulty finding jobs living at home with their parents. So you have that kind of environment and from an education perspective like your business, you have to eventually uh, come up with innovation and ideas of how to overcome that problem. Yeah. Because if there's no purpose in getting educated, we all, we all were convinced the higher the degree, the better the education, the better job, the more income you're going to make. That's the selling point. But if there's not a job for the people out there, and, and if the job is a lower paying job, like a lot of the manufacturing and higher paying jobs converted to the uh, support industry, service industry, working in hotels. Mm -hmm. A lot of the jobs are going from full time to part time and that's going to be exasperated very quickly in the near future. So people will be making less money, their benefit packages will be eliminated, the kids are paying for Social Security that they'll never get a penny back in return for. And so the big concern is, from an education perspective, how do you provide a value proposition to the, to the kids and the parents that are going to pay for it to uh, ensure that those kids are going to get value and get a good job where they'll be able to survive and not have to go on food stamps and welfare? That's kind of where the country's going. So, so I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. And uh, again, you know, people there like to think they're going to always change the world and the like. And uh, the machines are coming. Um, I, I think that is a message to, to take to heart. Um, we've seen it in industries like accounting, um, industries that we thought were kind of immune to automation, um, this, this occurring. And it is going to have a profound effect probably on the makeup of the workforce uh, in the U.S. And, and globally. So how do we address that? You know, it's kind of the second, second part of the question there. I think this gets back again to, you talk about return on investment. Um, unfortunately, there's very little variety in how universities approach education, really, at the end of the day. Um, if you think about you know, the number one ranked school and the number 2,000th ranked school, they often have similar types of strategy. They're, they're different for obvious reasons, but they still are approaching education kind of in the same, in the same way. I think that's where you start to get this bifurcation that I'm talking about. Take, for example, graduation rates. They're abysmal in the US, right? Um, UVA is 97% graduation rate. You know, it's a different problem than we face at UVA. So what I think, again, you'll see is that there's going to be value in these elite residential universities who will probably focus and continue to focus on a liberal arts education for their undergraduate population. They're going to be training you to think. They're going to be training you to be nimble in this kind of very uh, difficult competitive world. As we get to others, though, it raises the question, do you need that type of education? And maybe what would be better for you is something that is more appealing to the job opportunities that are available to you, that set you up better for success in this kind of brave new world and work environment. And again, maybe this is partly where online education can help, because it's going to serve as that disruption to get the right type of educational portfolio available to meet the needs that are, that are out there, rather than having what we kind of have now, which is a one-size-fits-all for thousands and thousands of students coming through uh, at, at 18. So I, I actually think it'd be, just thinking off the top of my head, it'd be optimistic 
that uh, this might actually cause us to do a better job of offering what is needed for different types of students that are, that are out there. Right. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. On behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, we just want to give uh, Professor Lennox a little gift here in appreciation. Oh, thank, you. thank you so much for thank coming you. out today.